Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. The U.S. State Department congratulated the DPP on winning the Taiwan regional leadership election, sparkling strong reactions from China. Why has the U.S. message triggered a war of words? And Chinese new energy vehicle exports hit the road in record numbers. Why are Chinese vehicles so competitive and what road bumps may lie ahead? Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. China strongly deplores and firmly opposes the U.S. State Department's comments on the election results in China's Taiwan province. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs released a statement Sunday afternoon calling the U.S. out for sending a gravely wrong signal to the Taiwan independent separatist forces. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Wang Yi, also said during his visit to Egypt that Taiwan's independence has never been possible in the past and won't be possible in the future. The response came after the U.S. Uh, congratulated the winners of Taiwan's elections and expressed the wish to further the so-called long-standing unofficial relationship with the island. Meanwhile, the White House again reiterated it does not support Taiwan independence. So what kind of game is the U.S. playing? Why is China reacting so strongly toward the State Department's messages? I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Aina Tangen, senior fellow at Taihe Institute, a think tank, also from Beijing by Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So the results of the Taiwan leadership and legislative elections were unveiled last uh, Saturday and the DPP or the Democratic Progressive Party candidates Lai Ching-de and his running mate Xiao Bing Kim won the race, but with only 40% of the votes, a plurality. While Meanwhile, the KMT came in second with 33.5% and the Taiwan People's Party, a newcomer, won an astonishing 26.5%. But in the legislative elections, the KMT won the greatest number of seats at 52, while the DPP came in second. Second, uh, 51. So I'm going to go to Mr. Gao first. Victor, how do you interpret the results? The drop of votes from 57% four years ago in 2020 for DPP to currently 40% voters voting for the DPP. Does the DPP win represent the mainstream public opinion on the island? Thank you very much for having me. The local leadership election in Taiwan came and went. The results have been announced and uh, the DPP candidates seemingly have been elected the next leaders of Taiwan. Uh, that in itself will not dictate the fate of Taiwan going forward. Uh, it will not dictate the status of the cross-strait relations because there is only one thing which can dictate the fate of Taiwan and the cross-strait relations. That is the one-China policy and Taiwan being part of China. That's the megatrend of our time. Whatever local government uh, leadership uh, reshuffle or whatever they will do going forward will not change that megatrend. That is the status of Taiwan being part of China. From the Chinese perspective, the fact that the DPP candidates only got up to about 40% of the votes is a strong indication that they did not represent the overwhelming majority of the people in Taiwan. And the fact that they didn't even win majority in the votes in the LegCo also is a firm indication that the decrease 
a the people supporting uh, DPP uh, is dramatically accelerating. And that's actually viewed in a positive way. However, rather than counting all these votes back and forth, I think China needs to be very firm on one principle only. That is separatism in Taiwan is anti-peace, anti-prosperity, anti-stability. There should be a line drawn in the sense that whatever the DPP uh, leaders will do as the next leader of Taiwan, uh, will not cross this red line. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they will be instigating hostilities and eventually they will be the culprit leading towards confrontation. And okay. they should be held responsible for crossing the red line. Yeah. Aina, let me ask you your reaction towards what China initially said following the results that came out uh, late Saturday, uh, noting that Taiwan is China's Taiwan. Chen Binghua, a spokesperson for the State Council Taiwan Affairs Office, said following elections that the mainland will work with relevant political parties, groups and people from various sectors in Taiwan to boost cross-trade exchanges and cooperation exchange cross-strait integrated development, jointly promote Chinese culture and advance the peaceful development of cross-strait relations as well as the cause of national reunification. So what is China for and what is China against here? Well, China's against uh, outside interference, especially from the U.S., uh, which seems to be gaslighting Beijing. Uh, on one hand, they say, oh, you know, we're, we're not doing anything different, yet they're congratulating the leaders of Taiwan as if they are an independent country. Uh, that is wrong. It was called out. Uh, in this particular way, way, I think Beijing is treating uh, Taipei the same way as treating uh, Washington in the sense that they're not trying to get, uh, address the political issues. They've just drawn a line, no separatism, and they're trying to engage the economic side as well as the people-to-people -people side. Uh, that is the long-term play here. Um, you know, whatever uh, one politician thinks is not going to move the country, and especially now that uh, DPP does not have uh, enough votes. They will not control the speaker. And without the speaker in the LegCo, they cannot schedule uh, legislation. They can't push it through. So that's going to be up to the two other parties. Um, Tang, although they only had got 52, one more uh, than DPP, they have two independents who generally vote with them. That means that they only need three uh, people from the Taiwan People's Party and they would in essence have control. Yeah, let's, let's take a closer look at uh, um, the kind of uh, reaction China has towards the U.S. State Department message. The Chinese statement says, as I uh, already alluded to earlier, China rea reacted strongly and the statement that's released hours later on Sunday after the U.S. State Department statement, China says the U.S. has sent a gravely wrong signal to the Taiwan Independence separatist forces. We strongly deplore and firmly oppose this and China has made serious representations to the U.S. side. Victor, for those who don't understand the gravity, the sensitivity of this issue to China, why is China so indignant? As Aina just said, um, the State Department congratulated the winner of Taiwan's elections, but it did call the election presidential election. So why is China so indignant and reacting so strongly? First of all, I think the United States is talking the talk but walking completely different walk. They keep saying that they still follow the one China policy, but in substance, what they have been doing is to hollow out as much as they can the one China policy. 
and turn Taiwan increasingly into a quasi-sovereign, quasi-independent entity, which is a serious violation of the One China policy. If the United States can get away with what they want, they probably want to have One China on the one hand and One Taiwan on the other hand, which is, again, a violation of the One China policy. Now, from the Chinese perspective, you may remember before China-U.S. relations were normalized on January the 1st, 1979, China insisted that the United States abrogate the Taiwan-U.S. defense treaty, withdraw all the U.S. troops stationed in Taiwan, and then cancel the U.S. recognition of Taiwan. The United States had no other option but to cave in to China's demand, and that leads to the normalization of relations in 1979. The United States should not expect that they can have the cake and eat it, because if they push the situation beyond the point of no return, they will throw a wedge into China-U.S. relations. Yeah, and uh, Victor, let me let me ask you this. The unification of Taiwan will be done by China rather than by anything in yeah, Washington. Yeah, let me ask you this because uh, it seems that the word democracy keeps popping up. It seems that it's a discussion about democracy here, but is it really about ideological issues or about values or about sovereignty of an independent country in the world? I mean, China here. Uh, first of all, come be on. short, please. No yeah. country in the world has a monopoly on democracy. No one has the perfect democracy. And for Taiwan to say, for the separatists in Taiwan to say, I have a democratic system, therefore I want to be separate and independent. No way, they have a brick wall to bump their heads into. And they will be stopped because no one will recognize Taiwan's independence. No country in the world can recognize Taiwan as a separate country and China at the same time. This is a dead end to start with. It's dead before it is born. So this is what I hope the United States will not waste hmm. their resources yeah. because eventually they will not succeed. Finally, um, what is the United States strategic goal here? Because on December uh, the 8th, 2021, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs of the U.S. government of the Biden administration, Eli Ratner, told the world in a congressional hearing that Taiwan is located at a critical node within the first island chain, anchoring a network of U.S. allies and partners stretching from the Japanese archipelago down to the Philippines and into the South China Sea. This is critical to the region's security and critical to the defense of vital U.S. interests in the Indo-Pacific. So, Aina, what kind of strategic thinking does the U.S. have by keeping its involvement in the Straits? Well, it's a containment policy of China. It's uh, hypocritical because they keep saying that they're not doing anything with Taiwan, that that's, you know, up to the Taiwanese when obviously it is not. And as I go back to my first point, this is gaslighting. Uh, Washington keeps insisting that it is China that is changing the deal here, the, the norms, when in fact it is the U.S. as that statement uh, so aptly put it. The U.S. sees this as a strategic game to contain China and they'll do whatever it takes, including using Taiwan the way it has used Ukraine. Victor, um, do you think this war of words will remain just a war of words? No, I think uh, there is firm indication that the United States want to turn the separatists in Taiwan into their proxies and they probably will have no qualm if, for example, they eventually will instigate a confrontation across the two sides of the Taiwan Strait so that the United States can climb up to the top of the mountain to claim that they have the truth. 
etc. And then they want to throw a wedge into China's development as well as China's Taiwan provinces development. They can hollow out Taiwan, moving all the semiconductor businesses to the United States, etc. However, I think this is purely their own calculation because eventually it will fail. No one can block China in the real sense of the word. And if you talk about modern warfare, it's all combined space, air, sea, land, submarine, etc. It's five dimensions combined into one. There is no first island chain in the real sense of the word. Between China and the United States, there is inevitable peace rather than destined for war scenario, which is a fallacy, in my best belief. All right, we're going to leave it there. Many thanks to Aina Tangan, Senior Fellow at Taiho Institute, and Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University. Still to come after a short break, Chinese new energy vehicles are on the fast lane to global markets. Why are Chinese NEVs so competitive? Will it be a smooth ride? Stay tuned. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. 1.2 million, that's the number of China-made new energy vehicles or NEVs exported in 2023. And Chinese carmaker BYD has been reported to have surpassed Tesla in the first quarter of last year to become the world's top pure electric vehicle maker. The rapid growth of NEVs helped propel China to the position of world number one last year in car making, exporting a total of 5.2 million cars. Now, from just exporting 70,000 NEVs in 2020 to 1.2 last year, that's a 17-fold boom in three years. What caused the acceleration of Chinese NEVs? How will it upend the global auto industry? I'm pleased to be joined from Amherst, uh, Massachusetts in the U.S. by independent analyst Xing Lei, co-host of the podcast China's EVs and More, and from San Francisco by Professor Daniel Kamen, the James and Catherine Lau, Distinguished Professor of Sustainability at the University of California, Berkeley, also a former science envoy in the Obama administration. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So um, let's take a look at some numbers here. According to the China Association of Automobile Manufacturers in 2020, exports of electric vehicles from China were only 70,000 units, and the number rose to 310,000 in 2021, and then to 680,000 in 2022, and now 1.2 million last year. That's 17 times in three years. Um, Mr. Xing, let me go to you first. What gives? behind what gives to the huge boom that China's NEVs have experienced? Uh, first of all, thank you for uh, having me and nice to be back. Uh, well, this is well documented, I think over the past uh, three or four years during the pandemic that seemingly China's NEVs took over the world. But in fact, I think this is 15 years in the making. So when um, the last round of uh, gushing growth for China auto sales, during right after the uh, global financial crisis in 2009 and 2010, something else was set in motion, which is the 10 city thousand NEV program that tried to electrify the fleets in China. And it's been 15 years of building the infrastructure, building the supply chain, and during the pandemic, so three words 
would probably describe the reasons behind uh, this, this gush in NEV export. Availability, affordability, and quality. And one of the big bigger reasons is China's manufacturing, especially automotive manufacturing, uh, stayed on while other parts of the world faced uh, issues in manufacturing. So China had the availability and let's say uh, markets like Europe, uh, other parts of the world, they had the demand, but not the manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So I think that those are, you know, the historical aspect of it and kind of the pandemic, you know, the shortages and the manufacturing. Yeah. I think those are reasons behind this uh, boom. Okay, let's talk about some of the factors uh, in just a moment. Let me go to Professor Kamen. How do you look at the reasons, the possible factors behind the boom, especially over the last three years? Actually, especially during the last year, according to the same organization, Chinese companies, the leading Chinese companies, for instance, BYD, they exported uh, a quarter of a million vehicles. That's up three and three times year on year. Um, Great Wall and EV export last year were also 80% year on year increase. What explains for the sudden boom in these numbers? Well, I think you just heard it's really not a sudden boom. I mean, this is definitely a decade and a half long increase. And it's really heartening to see because the global electric vehicle market um, can absorb a great many vehicles. We need to do a number of things. And the more competitive companies, I mean, you heard price, quality, and production volume in the previous answer. And that's really what we need from a whole range of winners. Early on, when it seemed like Tesla was the only player, that might have been interesting to get markets going in certain parts of the world. But ultimately, we need a diverse, competitive industry. And I think what we're seeing now is different segments emerging. So you mentioned the BYD numbers and that quarter million exports is important, but we also can look at companies like VinFast from Vietnam, which is opening up a manufacturing plant in North Carolina. That single plant will produce a quarter million vehicles a year, and that's just one new company that many people view as an upstart. And so what we're going to need to see to really accelerate decarbonization is many players in many different price, price points. And I think that one of the areas where we've seen not only Chinese companies, but also some Indian car companies, they see the low cost eight to 10 to $12,000 town car as a very competitive market, because ultimately we need to not just go further on electricity, but also we need to uh, decarbonize it. And so all of those features are critical and yeah. it's really nice to see the role that China is playing. So, um, Mr. Xing, let me come back to you. You talked about 15 years. China released a plan that's called the 863 plan, which a lot of people credit, attribute to uh, kind of setting the policy um, foundation for the booming of the NEV sector. Now, what, if you were asked this question, what is the most important factor behind the boom of Chinese NEV industry? What would you put your finger on? Well, I think it's the top-down approach uh, of having this national uh, policy framework. Uh, subsidies is one example that started in 2014 and ended in 2022, which really drove uh, the sales of NEVs. And then also electrifying you know, the fleets. 
so public transport. So quite a few cities in China, you know, where public transport and taxis are already fully electric. Uh, there's no more ICEs, and so I think this this top-down uh, framework that China had, I think that, that's that's the biggest reason to me. Um, how big is the role of subsidy? Because it's a very sensitive issue here. The EU has accused Chinese car makers of, or Chinese government of uh, unfairly subsidizing Chinese car makers. Therefore, they have launched an investigation. Uh, are you saying they are right? Well, so there's subsidies to the consumers and there's subsidies to the manufacturers. The EU Commission uh, investigation currently, uh, right now, I believe on BYD, Geely, and SASE Motor, are more on the, uh, the manufacturing side of it. So it's more of unfair competition. But obviously, Europe, they also provide subsidies to all the EVs, including the Chinese EVs, to consumers. Professor Kamen, how do you look at the implication of uh, the large number of uh, Chinese-made affordable and quality NUVs hitting overseas markets. You're seeing the latest cover of uh, The Economist magazine as if Chinese NUVs are hitting the world like meteorites, you know, <laughs> and the title is like terrifying. What is your view of the kind of impact, both positive and possibly negative as well? Yeah, well, I guess I don't see it as um, a particularly significant feature in terms of some earthquake or tidal wave. I mean, as as we both talked about answers before, this has been a steady and a thoughtfully uh, developed operation. And with many companies uh, and countries um, in the U.S., in Europe, in Korea, Japan, all setting high levels of targets for electric vehicle use, Everyone needs the manufacturing capacity, and China is a dramatic leader in that. So I don't think that, I mean, The Economist likes to have flashy titles. I don't view this as a particularly you know, watershed moment. What I do think is important, though, is that electric vehicles are only as green as the power to power them itself is green. And so we see, for example, places that are very coal dependent, whether it is in Shaanxi province in China or in West Virginia in the United States or in Poland, that electric vehicle is an improvement, but not a huge improvement over gas vehicles. Mm -hmm. But in places that are very green, such as part of the southern grid in China, California, in the, in the, the Nordic states, that electric vehicle can be two to three to four times greener than a gas-powered car. And as the grid gets cleaner and as we get more charging infrastructure, it's a bigger and bigger part of the green energy story. So I think what The Economist is likely to do next is really to highlight the role of electrification of transportation, not just individual vehicles, but as the other guest highlighted, the fleets. And in fact, I work in Guangzhou province where they installed 13,000 electric buses. Um, we see full electrification of the electric vehicle taxi fleet yeah. in Shenzhen and other places. Those are really the critical levers where policy, subsidy, infrastructure all come together. And I think what the economist is likely to do next is something about how clean transportation looked difficult 10 years ago. Now it actually looks like it's really just a function of integration of infrastructure. And that's something that many countries um, Germany, China, U.S. are actually quite good at. So all of this is needed. We actually have to accelerate yeah. okay. the direction, not see it as a battle.
Absolutely, I agree. Um, Mr. Xing, what kind of efforts are being put in by Chinese NEV makers to make sure that uh, they are pushing for the green initiative, both in the production and in the consumption of it? Well, I think this is um, something that will be scrutinized uh, a lot. Uh, because we, when we talk about NAVs, we have to talk about the upstream critical, uh, you know, raw materials, which currently China dominates, uh, right? But how you source those materials, how you refine, how you process, I think this will be uh, scrutinized. But I think China, is, uh, the Chinese companies are well aware of that. And uh, this is, uh, you know, a lot of the what's going on i'm here in the u.s what's going on is with ira is trying to erase kind of erase china from that equation but i think it's it's very difficult because china owns so much of the upstream uh you know uh material uh in a supply chain but i think uh efforts are being made uh on the chinese part uh to be you know the, the, whether it's esg whether it's you know, green sourcing, um, that type of, you know, thing that, that this will be um, uh, something that even the battery cell manufacturers, they will make an effort uh, to improve. Mm. Uh, definitely, this is not a static uh, development. Uh, the Chinese companies will continue to forge ahead and uh, make sure that their uh, green cars are really bringing a green impact to the environment where they're used. I, we have to leave it there. We have run out of time. Many thanks to my guest, Mr. Xing Lei, co-host of the podcast China EVs and more, and uh, Professor Daniel Kamen from the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you very much for joining us. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lushin, as always. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lushin in Beijing. You've got The Point. With a history of 5,000 years, it's no surprise that China has created a fabulous treasury of folk tales. Once a year, on the seventh day of the seventh month, all the magpies fly up to heaven and form a bridge. So many amazing worlds to discover. I want a new palace, said King Mu of Zhou one day. Chinese folk tales retold for audiences today. Will, will you marry me? He asked. And with little hesitation, she said, <laughs> Yes! 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. My father must not go to war. Someone must take his place. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3 wherever you discover your favorite podcasts. <laughs>